Welcome everyone. Happy Father's Day to everyone. It was um, encouraging this morning in my home uh, to wake up early and uh, to see uh, that two of my children, by the time I got back from my walk, were already awake. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. They woke up early to wish me a happy Father's Day and say, hey, what a great day it's going to be. Um, and I won't throw under the bus who these children were. Um, but uh, I said, hey, uh, why are you up so early? And uh, this particular child looked at me and said, to make sure I get the Cocoa Pebbles. <laughs> In our house, uh, if you don't get to the Cocoa Pebbles first, you get to look at the empty box and think of what might have been. <laughs> so a uh, few of our children at least enjoyed Cocoa Pebbles today, and I am sure that they will all wish me a happy Father's Day later uh, in the day. Of, of course, my wife does a wonderful job of making up for all of our children, and uh, she was very quick to wish me happy Father's Day this morning, so thank you, and thank you to all the fathers who are here today. Uh, what a good day to, to be together in the house of the Lord. So we have our memory verse uh, for this month. It's from the book that we've been studying, Habakkuk, and we could say it together uh, today. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2.4. And that is the book we've been in. We have been working through the book of Habakkuk over the last number of weeks together. And as we've studied the book, we've landed on a summary statement for the church today. Something that can kind of help guide us through our study. Indeed, the prophet presents for us hope for our present distress. And a summary message for us as the church could be... Yes, as we look around, the world is broken. And we can see that the law is insufficient to fix it, but we also know that God is able. He hears us. He saves us. He's able and is restoring all things. We are to be faithful as we patiently yet actively wait. And so uh, winding down into our final few weeks together, we have this Sunday and next Sunday in the book of Habakkuk. We have uh, started by looking at the prophet's initial plea before the Lord. Uh, Father, things aren't right. Our people are sinning before you. And then we saw God's response. I'm preparing a people. I'm raising a people up to come and to bring judgment. And then the prophet, he, he's not too excited about that response because he realizes that it's himself and his own people who are going to suffer because of this. And so then God responds to him. And this is where we were at last week. And if we remember, included in God's response, he gives voice to the nations who would be persecuted and oppressed by the Babylonians. And in God's inclusion of the voice of the oppressed nations, he has demonstrated to the prophet and to us that just because he raises up one nation to bring judgment does not mean that he abandons or forsakes those who are being persecuted. As God is raising up in a physical, political and economic way one nation and strengthening them, he is motivating and he is giving endurance and wisdom and courage and perseverance to another. And in the prophecy, Habakkuk sees and is given greater understanding. He has demonstrated his faithfulness 
in bringing his whole self and the fullness of all his concerns before God. And in God's answers, the prophet has found a cause for praise. And this is where we land in our text today. Today we're in Habakkuk chapter 3. We're looking at the first part of the prophet's response. It's a response of praise. And we're going to land on exploring three questions, considering and unpacking these thoughts together today. First, where do we turn in disappointment and distress? Second, what are some of the ways that God has demonstrated his faithfulness throughout history? And finally, how might recognizing and rehearsing truth regarding God's past faithfulness motivate the endurance that we need to live by faith today? We're going to find answers to these questions in our text this morning. And before we read it, let's take a moment to pray that God would direct our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Lord, uh, that the spirit is at work as it is taught and as it is preached, we give you glory for that. And you promise us that your word never returns void. We've uh, been able to explore the words that you gave your prophet uh, long ago together over the last uh, four weeks. And we found it to be incredibly relevant to the world that we live in today uh, and incredibly helpful, Lord. And so we give you praise for that. And it's encouraging for us to find today that the prophet turns his attention to praise. Perhaps all of his questions are not answered. Perhaps there's still some areas that he does not fully understand. But yet, Lord, he's compelled to praise you. And I pray, Lord, that his example to us today as a church would serve us well. And that we would find ourselves committed to the same attitudes and behaviors. Lord, guide and direct our understanding of the text today as your spirit works. Help us use your word in a way that would honor you as we leave here in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Habakkuk chapter 3 today, verses 1 to 15. Habakkuk 3, 1 to 15. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging riv waters swept on. The water gave 
forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The prophet's words in verses 1 to 15. In distress and in turmoil, the prophet has found himself throughout this book in postures that can serve as lessons for us all. And he's been faced with this tension of a good and just God that's working in and through his fallen and broken creation. And in this tension, the prophet has turned to habits such as confession, lament, waiting, silence, and now to prayer. And this is not just any kind of prayer. The word that describes this prayer, it actually is still untranslated to this day. It's known only as a shigianoth. It's believed to be a prayer that's set to music. It's a prayer that conveys strong emotion that's appropriate for the tumult that one might find themselves in. And within this prayer song, there will be tones of triumph that are mingled together with cries for justice. And mercy for judgment of sin. We know of at least one other Shigianoth in the Bible. It's found in Psalm chapter 7. And within Habakkuk's prayer, we also come to discover what we know and see as a theophany. Or a visible manifestation of the deity of God. Other theophanies in the Old Testament are found in Exodus 15 and 19. Judges chapter 5, Psalm 18 and 29, and Isaiah chapter 6. Habakkuk's prayer is going to include both praise and petition. And in studying the first portion of his prayer today, we're going to find that it's broken down into three stanzas, each with a firm focus on God, our Father. First, we'll find record of God's testimony. Then in verses 3 to 7, we'll see the theophany or the appearance of God. And finally, in verses 8 to 15, there's a description of God's power. And if chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk have highlighted seeing God and his, his revelation more clearly, there's a shift in focus that emerges in chapter 3, where now, seeing more clearly, the prophet while he's in a posture of prayer, is now hearing from God. Look again at verse 2. Oh Lord, I have what? I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. O Lord, do I fear or am I in awe and wonder? I find it interesting, friends, that the prophet is moved to prayer. 
There's much that's been said about prayer in our culture and world today. In fact, in just a few weeks, we'll begin a sermon series where we'll have an, uh, one of the weeks will have an emphasis on prayer. But prayer is not passivity, nor is it inactivity or indifference. Rather, prayer is an antidote for apathy. I'll say it again. Prayer is an antidote for apathy. And prayer is is powerful, and it makes a marvelous difference in the lives of both those who pray and those who are prayed for. Now, as I alluded to, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a sermon series on seven habits of a healthy Christian community. One of those habits, friends, is prayer. And prayer is an uncommon way for us to demonstrate both our need for God And our love for others. Prayer expresses humility. We don't have all the answers. It expresses vulnerability. We are too weak in and of ourselves to fix what's going on in our world today. And it expresses the confidence that God is able. And when we pray, friends, we commune with God on behalf of ourselves and others. Prayer is a priority of faith for our faith community here at CNBC. It's a habit that God uses in the church to form his people into the image of Jesus. And so together with prayer, the prophet is going to begin to show us a posture that we can take in the church today in distress and turmoil. We can turn to prayer. But not just prayer, the prophet's also pressing us towards the testimony of remembrance and a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness in history. Verse 2 reminding us of three specific ways God's demonstrated his faithfulness in the course of history. Look at verse 2 again. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. And so in this part of verse 2, history reveals God's faithfulness in three dominant ways. First, God has preserved life. Second, God has provided understanding. He's made it known. And third, in in his wrath, God has remembered mercy. Friends, God always has been and always will be the provider And the sustainer of life. He is the life giver. And the only one who's able to provide abundant life. Through the living water of his son Jesus. Throughout history God's provided understanding. He's a God who reveals himself to his creation. And embeds himself within his creation. He's the God who is always faithful to give us the understanding we need exactly when we need it. Not a moment too late, not a moment too soon. He gives us understanding when we need it. And as is clearly demonstrated in the flood narrative, in the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in narratives of the Israelite nation, even in his wrath, God always remembers mercy. As we're reminded by Jesus' brother James in the New Testament, mercy triumphs over what? 
judgment. Judgment. And so here, at the onset of Habakkuk's conclusive act of worship in his prophecy, we're reminded of both the power of prayer and of God's impeccable testimony in history. And so firmly establishing the faithfulness of God's testimony in history, the prophet begins to envision within his prayer exactly how God has worked and how God might be working. He moves in verses 3 to 7 into a description of God's appearance. Now, it's, it's an important point of clarification here that in the Hebrew... Many of the verbs that are in verses 3 to 15 indicate actions that have already been completed. In other words, as the prophet is relying on God's past faithfulness in history, he's envisioning a completed time in the future where God's appearance, his splendor and glory has filled and subdued the earth. And these thoughts, friends, they're sometimes rather incomprehensible to our finite minds. And so the writers of many psalms, and in particular this prayer, place a word there that we saw three times in our text today. Did anybody pick up on what that word was? We intentionally paused after each time it was read. Selah. Selah. And the word Selah was used by the writers of Scripture to get us to slow down. We are a get it right now, exactly how we want it type of culture and society. And when we see the word Selah in the text, the word Selah is an indicator. It's a flashing light that's meant to get us to slow down and really consider and take in what has just been shared. Much scholarship surmises that it was used in music and poetry. Perhaps uh, it was used as a time to uh, have music playing while one was pausing and reflecting, reflecting on the truths that had just been shared. And so in verse 3, the prophet begins this theophany. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor has covered the skies. His earth is full of his glory. Now, Teman and Paran were to the east as Israel would have exited uh, Egypt and to the west as they would have exited. And we're considering and we're getting uh, a picture here of the route of the exodus. And Habakkuk's envisioning the Lord coming out of the wilderness of Sinai. The front end of the theophany is saturated with words regarding light and brightness, the glory of God and his splendor. And friends, we're reminded that when we're faced with dark, uncertain, difficult and distressing times, it is good and hopeful to be us for us to remember that God's presence is with us in splendor and in glory. God is light. So we should expect a description of him to be filled with terms of brightness. And we see that there are rays that are flashing from his hand in verse four. He actually has to veil his power. And here again, tones of Moses's encounter from the Exodus narrative. We remember that when Moses was with 
God, as he came down from the mountain, his face shone so brightly that the people could not look upon him. In verse 5 of Habakkuk's prayer, God's appearance disrupts plague and pestilence. Both are personified here. They do not alter God's presence or his work. Rather, plague and pestilence find themselves disordered and disrupted by God's very presence. God has authority over these things. And again, we saw this in the Exodus narrative. Verse 6 is better translated by the NET where it says, He took his battle position and shook the earth with a mere look. He frightened the nations. The eternal mountains have been scattered. The everlasting hills have been brought low when seen and measured against the eternal ways and eternal decrees of God. And friends, we're reminded that though it may for a season look as though evil is prevailing. Right? Sometimes in our lives we look around and we say, boy, it really seems like evil is prevailing. Like that's what is winning. God's ways, though, are the ways that are eternal. God's ways. And though evil may prevail for a season, God always has the final word. And so we move from the nations in verse 6. Where verse 7 then goes to even nomadic tribes and people groups such as the Midianites and the Cushites would be overwhelmed and shaken by his appearance. Once again, how do we remember the Midianites and Cushites from Moses's narrative and the Exodus narrative? They were the nomadic people that brought Moses in. Moses's wife is described as a Cushite. So once again, the prophet draws from this narrative, even drawing from portions of Moses's prayer over the 12 tribes. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it's on the screen. You're going to see words that sound very familiar to what we just read in Habakkuk. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth. From Mount Paran, he came from the ten thousand of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. One biblical scholar has astutely observed, quote, Habakkuk indicates that restoration always comes by returning to the beginning. The prophet sees God's glory just as on Mount Sinai, revealing itself again and taking the same route. God comes to defeat the enemies and to redeem his people. This will get its ultimate fulfillment at the return of the Lord Jesus. End quote. Friends, the hope for the church today is that God's splendor has arrived in the person of Jesus, who has delivered a decisive victory over sin and death. It's a victory that foreshadows an ultimate and final future victory. And when Jesus ascended, he did not leave the church void of the active presence of God. Rather, he sent his spirit who inhabits and compels followers of Jesus today to shine as salt and light in the world that God has planted us in. I've heard many 
ask the question, what should the churches today be preparing the people of God for? I've heard that question asked. Perhaps you have as well. Out in public, maybe in personal conversations. To which I might respond that the church today should be preparing her people to live in the world as salt and light. The church today should be active in training people who are known by their supernatural and extraordinary ability to love and bear with others. And the church should be training and raising up disciples who are prepared and empowered to share the good news of Jesus with the world in which God has planted us and positioned us within. We are not here, friends, at this time and place in history with the commands and the commission that we have been given by God by accident. He has us here on his purpose. In the light of the world lives within us. It shines through us as we live out the command and the commission of God in the world today. And just as God made himself known through Jesus, he can also use Christians. It's a word that literally means little Christ. Did you know that's what Christian means? It means little Christs. That's what the word means. And just as God used Jesus to make himself known, he's also able to use Christians to make himself known in the world today. Our words and our actions can communicate volumes about what we believe to be true and what we actually know to be true about God. And we never know how God might be using us exactly where he has placed us through the work of the spirit within us to make himself known to someone else. What marvelous testimonies of faithfulness we hear from time to time of individuals who, who are just committed to healthy Christian habits such as prayer, service, caring for one another, the study of God's word, who faithfully practice and apply these things over the course of many years, perhaps an entire lifetime, that God uses in mighty, incredible, and supernatural ways, some of which we will never know of here on earth. We'll never know of. You know, I've been challenged recently with the reality about truly what ministry might be and what ministry is. And it's a difficult reality in the world we live in today that likes to celebrate and likes to prop people up and lift them up and celebrate them and, and go where all the popular things are happening and do what all the other people are doing. But could it be and might it be that true ministry is tough. That true ministry, real ministry, we're getting down into the dirt with others and really carrying them and sharing with them the word of God and lifting them up and praying for them. That that kind of ministry is like planting saplings under which the shade we might not ever get to enjoy. But somebody else will. Someone else 
years down the road, is going to enjoy the shade of that sapling that has been planted through the work of God in our lives as we remain faithful. The Bible calls us the just shall live by faith. Friends, it is a marathon. A marathon. And we are called by love to endure and to hold on to that reality and that hope that we don't know how God might be using us today to make an eternal difference in the life of someone else. But we're called to remain faithful. And so the prophet continues to move through this prayer. He continues to allude to the power of God, power over even the idols that had so captivated and corrupted the Babylonian nation. Now, we cannot forget that the Babylonians, they were not a people that were devoid of any sort of God. They had many gods, many different gods. And in this particular portion of Habakkuk's prayer, some of the imagery that he is going to bring up is going to be imagery that puts God directly above and directly more powerful than some of the Babylonian idols and and gods. God's wrath His anger and his indignation towards sin, unbelief, injustice, idolatry, and the many other habits of a prideful nation come front and center in this portion of Habakkuk's prayer. There was a Canaanite sea god that was known as Yam. There was a Babylonian sea god that was known as Tiamat. And there are allusions of God's defeat of these false gods in this prayer. And so once again, just as in the Exodus narrative, when the plagues came upon Egypt, each of the plagues that came upon Egypt was a plague that directly represented God's power over that particular Egyptian God. So too now in Habakkuk's prayer are we moved to think about God in a way that shows him in direct power above and over the ancient Mesopotamian Canaanite and Babylonian gods. The horses and the chariots of the Babylonians were described in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 as swifter than leopards, fiercer than evening wolves, flying like eagles. They were swift to what? Devour. But now, in chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet envisions God's horses far differently. Instead of devouring and destructing, just just being destructive and agents of destruction, the prophet imagines God riding his horses. What does he call them? His chariots of what? Salvation. And we're reminded that God's ultimate purposes are far greater than the ultimate purposes of the Babylonians. The weapons of God are not like the weapons of man. They are not aimless or purposeless. Rather, here in verse 9, they are giving a call, a charge, or a commission. They're used to judge sin and unbelief. But if we jump down to verse 11, we see that even the description of the weapons of God are couched in light. Look at verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light 
of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. God's power is demonstrated and witnessed in the judgment of the nations. But they are, it looks different than the Babylonians. In verse 12, he's marching out in fury. He's threshing the nations in anger. And the imagery is one of the harvest. And we are not mistaken here to consider the biblical phrase that we reap what we sow. As recognized in chapter 2, the Babylonians in their pride had sown habits such as greed, violence, self-preservation, exploitation, and idolatry. When the harvest of God's judgment would come upon them, they would sow the fruits of these destructive habits. And verse 13 draws us full circle back to verse 2. If God is the God who preserves life, provides understanding, and remembers mercy, then verse 13 succinctly demonstrates all of these characteristics in just two sentences. And as we read verse 13, let's consider how it perceives Yahweh as the life-preserving, understanding-giving, merciful God that He is. Look at verse 13, the two sentences. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. God goes out in judgment against the nation for the salvation of his people. He is committed to his anointed. He's committed to his covenant people. He has and he will keep his promises now. And forevermore, the echoes of the curse that were given to the serpent in the Garden of Eden are ringing through the tone of the second part of verse 13. In the Garden of Eden, the promise was given that the head of the serpent would be crushed by God's anointed. In Habakkuk, the head of the house of the wicked would be crushed for the salvation of God's anointed. And we could ask a fair question today in light of this verse. Who are God's anointed? And we would, we would do well to remember 1 John chapter 2, 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. Speaking to believers. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Friends, as holy ones set apart by God's anointing, by his spirit, compelled by the love of his son, Jesus, no weapon fashioned against us on earth can succeed. Amen? Amen? Amen. That's a true statement. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that for those who are in Christ Jesus, not even the sword is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And back in Habakkuk, just as the habits of the Babylonians would ultimately turn against them, as we saw last week and even this week, 
leading to their demise, verse 14 shows us that God's power could also turn their own weapons against them. Not just their habits and their behaviors would be turned against them, but watch in verse 14 how God's power turns their own weapons against them. You pierced him with his own arrows. The heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. The Babylonians had come to devour and scatter the people. And by the way, who do the Babylonians sound like today? And I, and I don't mean who are like them, but there's a passage in the scripture that says uh, that Satan comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Boy, it sounds like the Babylonians have a lot of things in common uh, with, the, with that particular individual here. They had come to devour, to scatter, but God would come to call a people unto himself, drawing this people out of captivity, bringing them into a land of promise, and ultimately giving them life through Jesus. And so verse 15 works in conjunction with verse 8 to form what is a lovely and repetitive bookend that concludes this portion of the prophet's prayer. So we rehearse the repetition and we note that the biblical authors never use repetition without purpose and intention. Look at verse 8 and again at verse 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? Verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging of mighty waters. And friends, we can observe all throughout this portion of Habakkuk's prayer, strong echoes of God's past faithfulness throughout history. I put a few on the screen here today because there are many. And if you follow along in your note guides, on the back of our note guides every week, there's a devotional guide that you can do at home by yourself or you can get together with other believers and do. And one of the questions in that devotional guide is to go through and to look at the many chimes of God's past faithfulness that the prophet has firmly placed and planted within his prayer. And again, I put a number on the screen here uh, for you today. Um, they'll also be available uh, for you if you watch back online. If you're trying to feverishly and frantically take notes, just pause because I'm going to flip the screen again and you'll be, you'll be frustrated. So I can make these available later to you if you'd like them. We've been concluding our time together with this question. How might these realities move us forward in a greater love for God and a greater love for one another? And in light of what we read today, I believe that through the prophet's testimony and through his words that there are at least three uh, applications that we can take with us today. One, church, we need to be fervent and persistent in prayer and praise. Hey, I, I get it. We live in a time that's equally as distressing and disturbing today, perhaps, as what Habakkuk lived in his days. But, but the postures of the prophet are hopeful to us. He goes to the Lord in prayer and praise. And those are habits that can help us as a church today, friends, to be fervent and persistent in prayer 
to continue to come before the Lord in praise, to not look around at our world and to, to become complainers uh, and whiners, uh, but rather to look around at our world and to try to explore and think about ways that God might be working in and through uh, us, His church, even today. Second, we need to be mindful of God's testimony of faithfulness. As the days get long, as the times are hard, as they grow difficult, as we see difficulty around us, it's important for us as a congregation, as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to rehearse and remember together that God's testimony of faithfulness is impeccable throughout history. It's unrivaled, unmatched by anything else that we've ever known. And to rehearse that testimony together can be incredibly encouraging and hopeful when we're discouraged or distressed. And finally, it is good for us, church, to be steadfast in our confidence that God, through his perfect love, power, justice and mercy, has already and is able to overcome the world. Jesus did it. And he's coming again. He will do it again. And there will be victory. And God will preserve and protect his people. And as we consider those things, and Scott comes, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the testimony of the prophet, how he comes before you in distressing and difficult times, in a posture of prayer and praise. Lord, motivate those same habits and attitudes within us. Uh, We live in confusing, difficult days, uh, sometimes that are hard to discern, Lord. Um, What we should say, if we should say anything at all, how much we should say, where we should stand, who we should stand with, what side we should be on. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your strength. There are many times in this day and age where we can feel afraid, inadequate, anxious, even angry. But Father, you have not given us a spirit that should um, perpetuate those attitudes. Rather, you've given us a spirit of of love, self-discipline. And through your word and through the spirit within us, you're motivating and you're compelling the habits and the fruits that come from the indwelling presence of the spirit. And those are the fruits, Lord, that we need to define and to characterize the habits and attitudes of the church today. And Father, we believe that as your spirit indwells your people and moves in such a way, motivating your fruit in our lives, that you'll get glory, that you'll be working, and that many people that do not live with the hope that we live with will come to know you as your church is faithful and as you work just as you have promised you would through your spirit, through Christ, and through your people. Lord, we can't wait to give you the glory for what you'll do. We know we need your help to do this because it's incredibly countercultural and it's an incredibly different way to live in the world than what we see all around us. So help us, give us your strength, and give us your clarity and your discernment in these days. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.